0: Rita Kempley of the Washington Post calls this film a heart-stopping, breathtakingly sumptuous haunted house of a movie that takes off where Dracula and Dante left off and CPR began. Joe Brown of the Washington Post calls it a new age nightmare on Elm Street with anti-drug propaganda and heavy-handed messages about atonement and reconciliation. And about its 2017 remake. Toronto Star's Ryan Porter says this would be boring if it wasn't so unintentionally funny. On this episode of Ruin Childhoods, we decide the fate of flatliners. Which one will it be? greetings
1: Greetings, starfighters today's a good day to podcast (laughs) i'd say it's a pretty good day to podcast so much as that
0: we're doing it it's happening
1: it's it is a day that we are both fortunately here we are well we are in good health and we are lucky enough to be in a position where we can sit here and talk about flatliners for for a little while
0: Yes, we are in the throes of July, our yeah. celebration of the late great Joel Schumacher, uh, somebody who I don't know, a lot of people have had issues with, and uh, I feel like a lot of it has to do with certainly the Batman movies, Batman movies, Batman movies the, the, the Batman the ba- yes,
1: the the Batman movies, though he directed Batman because there were two of them.
0: That's true. Two different Batmen. Yes, but also people seem to have a problem with flatliners. I, I get it.
1: <laughs> I get it. Yeah, but you gotta love flatliners. Well, Come it's also. On. I mean, it's also why. To me, to have a problem with something means like giving it the energy and the effort to have a problem with it. And it's not like you know, like people have a problem with Dances with Wolves because it beat Goodfellas for Best Picture, and Kevin Costner uh-huh. beat Martin Scorsese for Best Picture. I get it, but
0: Flatliners, Dances with
1: Death, yeah, it was an Just it saying. Was, yeah in August. Well, I mean, once yeah, and once again, we're you know going back to the ideas of the Lost Boys, dealing with uh, life and death and the you know gray area. In between and the un uh, the undeath, I uh, before we really
0: get into flatliners, did you have anything else that you wanted to add about falling down or the Lost Boys? Not to put you on the spot.
1: No, no, no. I I had been thinking about this, and you know, I think because we're spending each episode in July looking at Joel Schumacher's career as a whole, mm-hmm. there's been little bits and pieces. But as you know, between recording episodes and between looking at movies, as I've been reading articles, reading interviews with Joel Schumacher, which are quite fun to read, at least the ones that he did. I've never read any with him. He's done some interviews in uh, he did some interviews like in over the past couple of years. He did. uh, I want to say he did some interviews uh, when it was the 30th anniversary of, of Lost Boys. Okay. So that was, and he did a lot. There were a lot of interviews about the Bat- Batman movies, like, uh, cause 30th anniversary of Lost Boys was also 20th anniversary of Batman and Robin. Mm-hmm. And he was interviewed. And, and, and I know, like, I, I, it's funny because I really, whereas I feel like the Batman movies aren't, aren't the movies that should define his career or his legacy. It's this running through line as I'm watching all these movies. And, and we'll get into it as we get into flatliners but this running through line that every movie I watch I really think Joel Schumacher was possibly the best choice to take over that franchise. It makes a lot of sense to me. Now, and I look, I have my own Mia me- culpa here cuz I once used Schumacher as a verb in reference to messing up a comic book adaptation. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, it was I I was this was back in 2004, five, six, when I was, uh, I was, my roommate was Big Kev of Big Kev's Geek Stuff. And Big Kev was friend, was, was, back, you know, had a, a friendly relationship with Kevin Smith. Mm-hmm. And they would, you know, communicate via email. And, and Kevin Smith had been hired to work on a treatment for, I think it was for a Green Hornet film. This was, This would have been, yeah, at least like five years before Seth Rogen.
0: Yeah, I read about this while I was watching the Seth Rogen Green Hornet. And, you know, in the trivia, of course, the Kevin Smith stuff comes up.
1: Yeah. So Kevin Smith was working on this and that was kind of like in their email communication. So I told Kevin Schwobel, Big Kev, my, my roommate, I was like, tell him not to Schumacher it up ah meaning just like to to totally mess it up but the more of these interviews that i read the more i realize that he was really a hired hand for the studio especially on batman and robin and they just wanted to sell toys
0: well it's also it's really interesting because it's funny we're not doing any episodes on those particular batman movies but it's so relevant to bring them up in all of these show uh, Joel Schumacher episodes, because so much of everything that you see in the uh, you know late eighties early nineties that Joel Schumacher does, it kind of makes sense why he was chosen. You see the things that he does that make would would make a studio be like, that's the person that we want to handle these Batman movies or this Batman movie, and. This conversation came up with somebody I was talking with yesterday and that I am a Batman Forever and Batman and Robin apologist not because I think that they're good movies but because I think that they they should have been good movies like f- for all intents and purposes they do the things that people seem to want you know superhero movies to be like, and this is you know pre Marvel movies, but they are very comic booky. They are very much like if you were to take a page of a comic book and make it really come to life. And this is before everything was all gritty. You know, this is when there was still a lot of color.
1: I mean, not. I I have to. Uh, I, mean, with I don't. Either. I don't. Yeah. I
0: don't mean this is when uh, the the movies turned all gritty. I mean, like no. I this mean is still-
1: Comics were pretty gritty.
0: They certainly were, but I don't think that
1: the mass
0: appeal really was hitting until just after this time.
1: It depends. I mean, it de- honestly, it depends on who you ask. I mean, I myself am not like a comic book aficionado, but having been roommates with Big Kev and right, I I have tried. I mean, I know there. Are, I know a lot of people. They may or may not listen, but. I know a lot of people who are very, you know, like I've had a lot of arguments because I love Tim Burton's 1989 Batman. And I have a friend who is a a comic. He knows comics and he hates that version. He feels like it's so uh, against everything that he believes Batman to be. And what I've discovered is it's really a matter of which writers and which artists people True. liked in their batman runs but the movie just to kind of and to, to where i'm saying where where i see the influence of batman and robin and what the 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 batman dna that i see it connecting with is the the show the series with adam west yeah
0: i was thinking the that same thing that was what yeah. i
1: felt though it you know it's like it because it was like i don't uh, like a 200 million dollar movie i couldn't enjoy it the way i do the old batman series
0: Right, but it does what the the old Batman series and the old Batman Batman the movie does is that it has like a huge cluster of villains rather than one villain each, like the the Tim Burton Batman movies
1: and uh, uh, Batman Returns had had, had had well Batman Returns had if you count Shrek three well I wouldn't I mean, count Max Shrek not the ogre voice by uh, yeah. Mike Myers <laughs> I wouldn't
0: count Max Shrek at, you know if. Just the Penguin himself. I know Catwoman, I don't really consider to be like full-on villain.
1: She's like an anti-hero.
0: Yeah, she always kind of teeters on the edge. But I mean like the Penguin or the Joker. Whereas clearly the Riddler and Two-Face or the other one where you have Mr. Freeze and Poison Ivy. Like you clearly
1: have... And Bane.
0: Yeah, you very you you have a more similar structure to like the uh, Batman the movie, you know, villains teaming up
1: kind of thing. Any, anyway, which that was that was Catwoman Penguin. Well, I th- I think we're going to keep talking about and it's going to come up I, I because, you know, we're going to talk about Flatliners and Flatliners is a movie that to me if if I'm a studio head and I'm looking for the, the potential next director of a a franchise like Batman, especially the Tim Burton Batman, but I'm looking for someone who's going to take over from Tim Burton, do their own thing, but keep that same tone. Looking at Flatliners and Falling Down and The Lost Boys, I keep coming back to this like, man, had they just said, Joel Schumacher, here's a couple hundred million, make the Batman movie you want to make. Screw it. Had they said a hundred, he knows how to make shit look good. so. He could have just used all of the sets from Flatliners and been good to go. Well, he could have. So I, I, and I've, I've been kind of assembling a cast of like his, his actors, not maybe cut like kind of his, his regulars,
0: the Joel Schumacher players, is what I have them titled as in my notes for
1: this episode. (laughs) Yes, the Joel Schumacher players. I've been imagining that. Like I've been kind of thinking about Batman Forever, if. And who knows, he might have cast, like, Jim Carrey. He he has nothing, he he has not a negative word to say about Jim Carrey. Tommy Lee Jones, it's a different story.
0: Well, what's also interesting is, right, that's a whole other thing. I Something that really, to me, when I'm watching a movie or a set of movies that are by a certain director, is when you see actors who repeatedly work with the same director, it just is a good sign to me that... It's a pleasant experience for people like Kiefer Sutherland. Uh, I mean, Jim Carrey, who's in, you know, the number 23 and also Mm -hmm. Batman Forever. You know, there's... uh, Julia
1: Roberts did back-to-back, Flatliners Dying Young.
0: That's true. Yeah. Oliver Platt is also in A Time to Kill. So Mm -hmm. uh, there are also some of the, you know, lesser knowns like Kimberly Scott, who plays uh, the adult version of Winnie Hicks, is in like all of his movies. She's even in Batman and Robin, I think. Like she's yeah. in all of them. And she's not a huge name, but she's just one of the Joel Schumacher players. Beth Grant, who is in everything, she plays one of the um the patients at the beginning of Flatliners who's explaining you know, describing her the, afterlife the, situation. The older
1: woman, the she, one who's Yeah.
0: Yeah. She is in she's in every movie period, but she is in every Joel Schumacher movie almost. And it also makes me wonder, if for the Batman movies, yes, Val Kilmer, yes, George Clooney, but I wonder if he considered Kiefer Sutherland, or if there was ever a discussion about bringing Kiefer Sutherland in to be a Batman.
1: I mean, based on the interviews I've read, it wasn't brought up. And I mean, there's a few interviews. Like I read one with Hollywood Reporter. If you, it, I mean, if you just Google like Joel Schumacher and Batman, there's all these articles. Like Joel Schumacher apologizes for Batman and and Robin, or.
0: Well, there's also been a lot going on uh, definitely on Twitter recently because there's a lot of, you know, articles coming out were saying like, you know, there's a a longer cut of uh Batman, I want to say Batman Forever the, that has like all these scenes that got cut out, that's like a grittier version. And of course, people on Twitter are like, "Oh, those deleted scenes have been available for a long time and they're stupid and, you know, it's not any better."
1: I mean, originally the third Batman was, was going to be grittier and more like, mm-hmm. and rougher and like with Robin, like I want to say at one point they were considering Marlon Wayans. I want to say it was when, uh, it was like right after Batman I yeah, Returns. Yeah, remember that. Yeah. They were going to bring Marlon Wayans in as kind of, you know. Was like, Marlon
0: Wayans one of the uh, unknowns in the in your casting call?
1: Oh, no. 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 we talked about last episode. Yeah. <laughs> no, Mar- Marlon Wayans was uh I I think uh, you know, not maybe not known, but also not unknown cuz the Wayans. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. He's a Wayans. Yeah, he was known. No, I mean, I but but I was thinking I was like, man, like Brad Renfro would have made an interesting Robin. Yeah. Dick Grayson. That would have been very interesting. Um, yeah. I was like, Michael Douglas would have been, and because I think Michael Douglas did he produce Flatliners? He produced Flatliners
0: nineteen ninety and Flatliners twenty seventeen.
1: So I was first. I was thinking about like Michael Douglas as Harvey Dent, and then I was like, man, what about Michael Douglas like nineteen ninety five as the Riddler? If you were going to go in a different, that'd be interesting. Direct, you know that or like I don't know. For some reason, I'm like, man, Matthew Broderick. Like eh, maybe not mid nineties Matthew Broderick, but like. Matthew Broderick circa election would have made such an yeah. interesting type of like the Riddler, just like just this guy who everyone craps on. And yeah, Um but I was, yeah, I but was thinking Jim about,
0: that. W- you know, was the hottest comedic actor in that moment. Like he, he that was the was, hottest
1: actor, like period. sure. Yeah. I mean, but it was like, right on the right for cable guy. And yeah,
0: yeah, but like if you're casting the Riddler and Jim Carrey's name comes up, it's like a no brainer.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so honestly, I think, yeah, I, I like I like him as the Riddler. Except you know what though, and since I've been watching, like I watched Kidding with the show that uh, Jim Carrey's uh-huh. on on Showtime, the Michelle Gondry Showtime show. Yeah, I watched or I watched the first season of it, and I'd be so interested in Jim Carrey, circa twenty twenty. <laughs> playing the Riddler, but not necessarily the Riddler the way that he was in Batman Forever. But the Riddler, right. the more more of the, more of the type of Riddler that we would have seen in Christopher Nolan's that yeah. uh, Dark Knight yeah. trilogy.
0: Yeah, and you know, I. Um, Net since you bring up Jim Carrey, he just I think released a memoir that I'm very curious to read. Oh. Yeah,
1: I did not uh, hear about
0: that. I hear it's quite good, unless I dreamt it. But who knows. So if I was to bring up a one more thing at all about falling down, I know that we kind of did a little bit of a departure, um, but this was just something that like, so for anybody who doesn't know, and I don't know why you would know, but the the way that we kind of break down our roles on this show is, uh, you know, Dan will typically write up the show notes and I will do the editing. And, uh, you know, Dan also manages kind of like our, list of what to do next and stuff like that. Uh, But, you know, I do the editing. Audio editing is part of my job job that I get paid for. So it is kind of like I could do it in my sleep. And editing the Falling Down episode was really fascinating because it really brought me back into the movie, which is a difficult movie to be in just watching it. But, like, when you're, it's in your ears and you're just, like, thinking about it more and more and more... I don't know, it becomes a a different experience. And there was something that we brought up in that episode, uh, the last episode that came out for Falling Down, that I wanted to bring up because it also relates to something that's been happening on our social media. And that is in Falling Down, you know, Michael Douglas's character's ex-wife has this experience where she is concerned that her, you know, abusive husband who's emotionally abusive, uh, is going to be coming to their house on their daughter's birthday. And the cops come out a bunch of times. And then of course, like nothing happens. So they leave. And this one cop says to her, like, did he ever hit you or, you know, hurt you? And, you know, it was the type of thing where no, he never actually like laid a hand on her, but it was emotional abuse. And, we had brought up how you believe the victims. And uh, that, you know, resonated with me, especially because as I was editing that, um, somebody uh, had commented on a social media post uh, referring to our Lost Boys episode with the Corys. And, uh, you know, it had come up that, you know, Corey Feldman uh, in his memoir talks about the abuse that he and I mean, also Corey Hain, but that he personally had and, uh, you know, there was some disagreement with what could have been, you know, the thing that actually happened. And we're taking, you know, we're just going to remind everybody we have a stance on this show. There's <laughs> the two of yeah. us that we believe the victims. So and that's it, all I really wanted to say about that.
1: No, John, thanks for bringing that up because I, I want to just to th- uh, throw in there while while we're on the topic Abuse and trauma can create so much in a Like if for those of us, I uh, am grateful I haven't experienced, um, you know, that uh, abuse or anything that would bring on that type of trauma. But it, especially when it, especially when that trauma is is untreated and not given attention, and in the eighties and nineties. This stuff was swept under the carpet and I mean, you know, the, the perpetrators were protected and the victims were shamed and silenced and that can, that has permanent ramifications the longer that goes untreated the the deeper the, the the trauma the deeper the damage so and corey fame corey fame corey feldman and corey hame were what an appropriate uh portmanteau well, but well because that's <laughs> they were both victims and they were they were victims at a time when they weren't protected and you know what it just so happens that sadly Corey Hame hasn't survived to this day and somehow Corey Feldman has, you got to remember though, Corey, I mean, like Corey Feldman was also big in with Michael Jackson and actually that's something that's come up with Joel Schumacher in interviews because Joel Schumacher had a, I think he had like a friendly relationship with Michael Jackson and was because, well, so Joel Schumacher, just to, I mean, some history, uh, you don't know a lot about his past. So he was, you know, out of the closet homosexual director in in Hollywood in the late 70s and 80s, but started yeah. as he was a costume designer. He was, John, you mentioned a, a window dresser in New York. And Joel. Mm-hmm. so Joel Schumacher was part of that. And he also like, he was a kid who was basically left to his own devices in New York City in the 50s and 60s. He said yeah. he started, he started messing around with drugs and drinking and stuff like 10 or 11, you know, he's, and what, what, I mean, this will, I'm sure this will come up. Um, again, but you know, he really had a feeling he had this, he had like an understanding of these, of, of these kids. And I I feel like it's almost, had they been in the Schumacher players forever? Like I,
0: yeah, I feel
1: like he really looked out for, for the people he worked with.
0: Well, Corey Feldman, especially he, you know, on the set of the lost boys, Corey Feldman would be you know, on on something and unable to do his thing. And Joel Schumacher was just like, if you don't clean up, you're done. And granted, he certainly had, you know, more experiences with drugs and alcohol, but for that, you know, Corey Feldman credits Schumacher with, you know, kind of saving him at that time. And he was just a little kid.
1: And- well, but Schumacher knew because Schumacher was like, damn, I was doing I was right. doing yeah. all sorts of shit and sex and with whoever. And th- yeah. there, and that's why, like the whole Michael Jackson thing came up because he was like, you know, like he was in that place once as a young person who was being, you know, who had a lot of attention on him, and so it's interesting to hear his his take on that, also his take on that at you know from a few years ago when he's you know nearing eighty and has zero fucks to give anymore.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, and also just uh, one more thing to to bring up is. Uh, you know, we had mentioned on uh, the, an Instagram post that Corey Phil. Well, uh, there was the I think it was called Between Two Corys, the kind of like docu drama uh, about the Cory's life uh, that featured our our friend of our podcast Keith Coogan, who, well, his voice starred alongside Corey Feldman's voice in The Fox and the Hound, which I just showed my kid recently.
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Who, uh, another person who worked on the Fox and the Hound, Tim Burton, who directed the first two Batman movies of the modern era. So
1: all uh-huh. comes full circle. Yep, yep. Uh, which were then turned over to Joel Schumacher, who made a movie with Kevin Bacon called Flatliners. <laughs> well done. You did it. Well, Flatliners is like, if you're a Kevin Bacon game player, Flatliners is one of those. It's like Flatliners, There's a few good so men, many, JFK. Oh, my God. The side yeah, ev- of Kevin Bacon.
0: Totally, totally. Uh, so why don't I launch into the synopsis because we're going to be referencing names and scenery and <laughs> situations. So I may as well describe for our audience uh, if you either haven't seen Flatliners or it's been a while, here's your refresher. On a quest to make a major scientific discovery... Nelson Wright calls on some of his Chicago med school classmates. Among them is Rachel Manis, the smartest student in the class, who has a fascination with what happens after you die, Randy Steckel, a skeptic who takes vigorous notes into his tape recorder, Joe Hurley, a sexual criminal who owns a camcorder, and David Labracio, a rebel who has just been suspended from med school for breaking protocol to save a patient's life. Nelson, played by Kiefer Sutherland, is the first to play with life and death by having his friends stop his heart so he can experience life after death and then be brought back to life so he can tell the tale. Nelson is transported to a field with eerie trees and a small group of children. His friends are able to resurrect him and they marvel at what they've discovered with their dangerous experiment. Next is David, then Joe, then Rachel. Before Randy gets a turn, they discover that flatlining unlocks secrets from your past that haunt you, and in Nelson's case, seriously try to kill you. Nelson keeps seeing a young boy named Billy Mahoney, a kid who was accidentally killed by Nelson many years earlier during an intense bullying session. David repeatedly sees Winnie Hicks, a young girl that he used to bully when they were in school together. Joe encounters women he's sexually assaulted, who use his cheap lines against him as the guilt eats at him. Rachel is haunted by the memory of her Vietnam vet father, whose suicide she witnessed and was then blamed for. After Nelson admits that he's being physically assaulted by the ghost of Billy Mahoney, David decides to face his problem head on. He visits Winnie Hicks, now a grown woman with a husband and daughter, and he makes amends. Having a clear conscience, he goes to tell the others how to make things right with their personal demons. For Joe, it's too late. His fiancé has come to Chicago because she was worried about him. In his apartment, she discovered his stash of videotapes in which he is sleeping with dozens of other women. Rachel allows her visions to paint a deeper picture, and she discovers that her father was a heroin addict and his suicide was not her fault. She can now forgive herself. For Nelson, there's only one option since Billy is dead and he can't make amends. He travels into his psyche by flatlining once again in order to confront Billy and make things right, even if it means he has to die doing it. His friends find him and try to bring him back, but it seems hopeless. Once the tables are turned in Nelson's mind and Billy is the one who kills him, Nelson's friends are able to bring him back to life. So, Nelson, is played by Kiefer Sutherland, We have Rachel being played by Julia Roberts, Randy is played by Oliver Platt, Uh, Joe is played by Billy Baldwin, and David is played by Kevin Bacon. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, there's just a lot of words going through my head right now, and Kevin Bacon took a half a second longer than it typically should. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's also really confusing because there's a character named Joe and then there's David Labratio and we know a Joe
1: Labratio. Yes. This was always, this has always been a a point of confusion for me. Not, not to the point of not being able to follow the movie though.
0: Reading the synopsis in my notes, it's jarring because I always expect to see Joe, And Labratio together, but then they're not. And it's just like messing with me. Uh, Joe Labratio, who is uh, an agent, I believe he actually is running a production company in L.A. right now.
1: Yeah, no, he's there's that Joe Labratio doing well for himself, not not kicked out of medical school. Uh,
0: No, no, no. not dramatically
1: uh, scaling the side of the building for some reason. Well, he's a climber. I have this in my notes. I feel like there's something they mentioned because I'm like, why the hell yeah, is climbers he repelling? Can use stairs too. Yeah, I yeah, I I don't know, but I was like, yeah, why is he repelling? Maybe he's maybe he's trying to skip out on like paying the rent or something, and maybe there's a deleted scene, a gritty deleted scene that would
0: who knows? Or or our buddy Joel Schumacher just wanted to have him, you know, do some weird dramatic exit. And I also want to bring up, um, you know, we've been talking about kind of the themes. In Joel Schumacher movies and the things that make movies Joel Schumacher movies, and one thing that's in a lot of his movies, not all of them, is uh, weird cars. So mm. in this movie, uh, David
1: has a really bizarre military. It's kind of like I, Grandpa, I mean, it's it's a little like Grandpa's car in The Lost Boys.
0: Exactly. Well, Grandpa in The Lost Boys had the two cars. He had kind of the convertible like from the fifties, and then he had this like oh, no. weird
1: like model t <laughs> no i mean no i mean the one that he kills edward herman with <laughs>
0: totally yeah. yeah no it's like a bizarre you know souped up uh post-apocalyptic
1: 20s yeah car from the 20s
0: yeah so in this one david who is the only person in the movie who has a car has this car and it's just it's
1: really this big bizarre. yeah it's like some survivalist truck that's like all tarped over and well yeah and you say that he's, he's a got climber this... and that
0: makes that makes sense because when um when nelson is in the back of that car and he's being accosted by Billy Mahoney there's the like pickaxe. So yeah yeah, yeah that yeah. I you guess know what, knowing I... that he's a climber sets up the fact that he would have a pickaxe in the back of his weird truck.
1: But there's like a th- it's a throwaway line when he's When when he's leaving and Kiefer Sutherland is is, is like, oh, yeah, you're going to go off and climb a mountain or something like it's such a I never caught it before. Why don't you just walk away, Dave? Go climb a mountain. You know, I don't even understand you anymore. You burned your career today on a stranger. Now you're turning your back on a friend. Nor did I ever question why he's repelling down the side of his building until now.
0: Right. So. Or why he has a pickaxe pickaxe in the back of his truck. But it's like I guess that line is just there and the action is there to set up the fact that there's a pickaxe in the back of his truck. That's and the it, only reason I can think of.
1: And interestingly, so the 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 part that uh that John's referring to here is when David goes to to visit the adult Winnie Hicks to yes. to make amends. And Who's doing great for herself?
0: She's, she's got doing, a beautiful
1: greenhouse, she has a lovely family. Winnie Hicks is doing but uh, and I want I'll come back to that because I th- I think that character and that storyline is is a great touch. I do too, but, yeah. Um so in that scene Nelson is is in the car cuz he does, he doesn't want to be alone. And yep. that's when he senses Billy Mahoney running around the vehicle. And yeah. it's it. This is the one time that you see that this is him because he's holding the pickaxe and he's like pulling it towards him. He's he's pulling it yeah. towards himself. Right. Well, when David like is like he's back pushing to the away. truck.
0: When David comes back to the truck and he goes back there, clearly there's no Billy Mahoney. It is him doing it to himself as if Billy Mahoney is doing it right. to him.
1: Which yeah. which is not... Up until that point, it's the one thing that's kind of like, well, wait a second. So so like joe hurley is every time he passes a screen seeing one of these these tapes and and i i think and and not like look the character is a scumbag but it's not oh my god he does not sexually i don't i he well listen to the thing listen
0: to the things and i'm gonna put in the clip listen to the things that the women say to him or that he's imagining them saying to him as he's walking to his place because they're the things that he said to them and it's like oh no it's okay we can just lay in our underwear we won't do anything right right. you know it's coercion plus he well yes but we don't know what happened between him saying those things and what ended up happening
1: you look like you're enjoying the day yeah right don't you remember me Joe yes of course are you a model you could be look I've gotta go Oh, I'm not picking you up. I just picked you out. Mind if I buy you a drink? No, thanks. I'll call you this weekend. I've been looking for a study partner. Fine, I'm in the book. Hey, gorgeous. How are you? What you doing? Some crazy girl. I know you, don't I? Would you like to? We don't have to do anything. We can just lie together, hold each other in our underwear. I'll call you, I promise. I'm tired of playing the field.
0: We can stop whenever you want.
1: It'll only make our relationship never felt like
0: this before. I'm tired of you. Of course I respect you. When you stop where you want. Joe, Joe. Joseph. Carl. Whenever you want. I need you to show me that you love me. You're not real! But also, he is videotaping without consent well yeah him sleeping with these women which is a sex crime
1: yes that's yes like yes that's he is by definition a sexual criminal oh oh definitely with without it without a doubt i i just wanted to be specific with the uh with the terminology just not just based on what on what we know it doesn't make him any less of a scumbag he's still a fucking scumbag and he gets what he deserves and hope davis come on he's engaged to hope davis and who is just a she's wonderful in everything so <laughs> that's why would you, she is
0: in everything basically
1: well yeah i mean hope especially around that time she pops up uh isn't she the uh the not the stewardess but she working at the counter and home alone when they're in france and Catherine o'hara is trying to get back on the plane oh my I think God, hope is davis she? is the french um <laughs> like flight uh the, like airline oh, representative. that's so funny Yeah, with uh, with a French accent. And what else does she pop up in around that time? She is
0: just in everything. And then, of course, you have uh, Julia Roberts, who, you know, this is the same year as Pretty Woman. And, uh, you know, I was looking at her filmography, and it's funny because it's like she's in, like, a couple things, and then all of a sudden she's in, like, Steel Magnolias. Like, she's just, like, huge all of a sudden. And then... I feel like it was like Mystic flat-liners. Pizza. Mystic Pizza was like the first thing, and that was like a you know a big big movie.
1: Yeah, and then she was like in the the Satisfaction with Justine Bateman, mm-hmm. where they where she was like the bassist in their band. Uh, I think I think Julia Roberts was in that. I didn't see that one, so yeah. But it I sounds think it cool. Also, it, it, it also has another name. I think they like later changed the name because the Rolling Stones sued him or something. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, but Julia Roberts did, yeah, she did Flatliners and then Dying Young and, mm-hmm. I mean, with Joel Schumacher. Yeah. And she just kind of, yeah, I mean, she became, you know, Julia. I mean, she, she was Oscar nominated for Steel Magnolias or Pretty Steel Woman. Steel Magnolias. Both of them. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's just a huge star. She's She's great in this.
0: Yeah, she's totally good in this. I I like that she's the smartest person in their class. They bring her in because they need her. She's and the fact that she's a woman, you know, is a, kind of a nice touch.
1: Yeah. I'm but, like based on the way they talk to her, I'm like, I think the fact oh, that she's the smartest in the class is like maybe twenty-five percent to do with it, seventy five percent everybody's is trying all of to them. sleep with her. Yeah. 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 Maybe not steckle, I don't know. Maybe
0: not steckle. Oliver Platt is a saint. I'll leave it I at love at
1: I I'm a big Oliver Platt fan. This was the movie yeah. that he had been in a few. He's another one. Who, he was in like Married to the Mob and Working Girl, and then yeah. Flatliners was was a big shot for him. So I enjoy him. Love in me this some movie. Oliver Platt. Love me yeah. some Oliver. Platt. And I I love the fact that he calls out that the like because when 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 Hurley is yelling at him and like oh well, you why won't you go under and he's like good thing I didn't flatline. My 350-pound baby should be running after me, waving the half eaten pastrami sandwich I stole from her. (laughs) Yeah. Because I'm sitting there, I'm like, well, I'm like, no wonder the script doesn't have him going over what, like, although it'd be weird if he had this, like, he had the most fucked up background of all of them, it would be crazy.
0: Yeah, he's like, I better not go under. No, and it's interesting because, so he's kind of the skeptic at first, and then, like, right after Nelson goes, he is kind of like a believer and he's, you know, recording into his little tape recorder. and He's just like the greatest discovery of, you know, modern science or something like that. And
1: this could be the conquest of our generation. The last great frontier. Look, first you had the sea, then America, then the West, the moon, Mr. Leary, drugs, the inner journey, Miss McLean and our illustrious former first lady, the outer journey. But this, this is ours. Well, we did have disco. We have finally found something worthwhile, something to upstage those fucking baby boomers. Well, Labratio Le- is the one that they have to. He's the the atheist, they call him right. throughout the movie. The test subject. Yeah. yeah. Like, well, yeah. if the so, atheist does is going to believe it. Yeah.
0: yeah. So, uh, but Steckle is great because he's also a bit of the comic relief. Like, there isn't much comic relief, but, like, he brings it's a lighter him. side to it. Yeah. yeah is great. I uh, yeah, I don't know. It's the thing is like this movie is ridiculous. We we get into it and the the first flatlining happens so fast and it's like you I I really wanted to know more about like why he wanted to do this. And I was a little bummed that we didn't get a little bit more ahead of time. I don't know if there are like deleted scenes that lead up to it, but it's like the very first line of the movie is you know, it's a good day oh, to die.
1: It's a, a good, good day, day to die. To die.
0: Yeah. yeah. And
1: then we just kind of get into it. You know what puzzles me? This is for, for being <laughs> every location. Well, the fact that I would <laughs> expect a medical school to be better lit.
0: <laughs> well, also not leaking from the roof and also not in some weird like museum.
1: They're in it. Yeah. Like some like old runes. It's like they're squatters. Like this medical school just set up. a eh. And they're like, as long as no one notices we're dissecting cadavers, we're all good.
0: Yeah, without wearing any gloves. Uh, but yeah, they're <laughs> they're in this crazy, weird building, and I I would love to know why Schumacher decided to set it in a place like this and not a hospital setting. Or it could have just been a thing where it's like, why do what people expect? You know, why not make it look really beautiful and weird because this
1: is a weird movie well and that's what what i wonder is how much of it is supposed to be how much even of the visuals is supposed to be taken literally and how much of those visuals is are there to reflect the characters who are all except for Steckel, haunted by something yeah. and right uh, i mean uh, you you
0: start off with these like you know these statues, these uh, these sculptures, and the, and then you, you go inside, and it's a a weird decision for kind of like a sciency type of situation.
1: It, considering that he that it, it is a more appropriate setting for a vampire movie than the setting for yeah. his vampire movie, though I have no complaints. Um, yeah. <laughs> but just I want to uh, quote the uh, the Car- Karen James review in the New York Times. Uh, okay. of Flatliners, which by the way, 30 years ago, this August Flatliners. So if you're looking for an excuse other than this podcast to, to watch Flatliners, it is its 30th anniversary. Happy anniversary. I am trying to remember if I saw it in the theater. I can, I, I, there were a lot of ticket stubs from the theater where I would have seen it, where the, it was, the ink was so faded, but I did go back in my ticket stubs to look. Yeah. Cause I swear I saw Flatliners at the Rialto in Westfield. But, well, then I'm sure you did. But no, she says, so uh, this is what, what Karen James had to say. She said, the the true star of Flatliners is the film's haunting atmosphere. Mr. Schumacher, who started his career in fashion design, knows the full value of style. Like all good horror films, this one exists at a skewed angle to reality. But more than most, its resonance depends on the meeting of ordinary life with a slick, hyper-real aura which owes a great deal to Eugenio Zanetti's production design and Jan Debont's photography. Jan de bon. Jan de bon, cinematographer extraordinaire.
0: So, yeah, we should also talk about Nelson's apartment. And they there's a reference at one point to, like, you know, if he dies and doesn't come back, then uh, one of them says, like, Nelson, if you die, can I get your apartment? apartment?
1: It's a joke.
0: It's a joke. And what's bazonkers about it, Well, one of the things that's bizarre about it, zero furniture.
1: Maybe he's squatting.
0: Yeah. It is essentially like a museum without anything. Like, it's just this huge, huge, huge place. Very, very white. With, like, colored, like, neon blue, like, fluorescent lights at the bottom, like,
1: kind of near the floor. It was a department store before he moved in? Maybe. And... Well... Uh, who does that? Like, well, seriously. I mean, but maybe a kid who grows up in a in a group home does that because he says he was taken away from his parents when he was what nine. So maybe a kid, maybe somebody who's not used to having possessions or anything that's permanent is the type of person well, who. Yeah, I, don't know, I understand. A, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I,
0: the furniture thing is less weird to me than the lighting in that place, but. <laughs> What's also puzzling is, you know, he, when he's a kid kills this other kid towards the end, you see him like at the grave being
1: like, I was taken away from my family when I was nine years old. I was sent to Stoneham school for boys. I thought I paid my dues. dues.
0: Like I, I did right by this. How is somebody like that able to go to med school? He must have been like a crazy good student and getting scholarships and stuff like that because that's a uh, paid his dues. I guess he. I guess he paid his dues, or he but, changed his name, or he changed his name, well, which is something that call we're going to talk about in a little bit.
1: But Billy Mahoney calls him Nelson in the well. That's in true. Flashbacks, so, so
0: yeah. no, no name change there. No, and I we'll we'll come back to that in in a little bit. No, you know what? Let's come back to that now. Because Why not? <laughs> Let's come back to the thing that we are talking about a second ago. Why so not? Uh, in the 2017 version, Kiefer Sutherland makes an appearance as a professor at a med school. And he, his name is Dr. Barry Wolfson. And for a while, when this movie was in development and it was announced that Kiefer Sutherland was going to be in it... Kiefer Sutherland even said that he would be the same character and that this is, it was going to be like, oh, this is a sequel to it. But his name is Dr. Barry Wolfson. And the theory is that it is the same character, but he changed his name, which is kind of weird to do when you're in the middle of med school or like, why exactly would he do that? I don't necessarily understand the logic behind that, but. I mean, as far as we know, no
1: one else knows he's doing this outside of this group.
0: (laughs) I know. Yeah. So it is believed that it is technically the same person, but there's nothing like, and and, uh, allegedly there's a deleted scene in which he makes like, gives like a lecture that alludes to the idea that he's toyed with life and death before. But beyond that, there's never like a... And whatever you do, don't kill yourselves for the for the fun of it. Because been there, like that doesn't happen.
1: He doesn't look up while he's like teaching a class one day, and Billy Mahoney is sitting in the front row of the lecture yeah. hall.
0: He's re- he's going down like roll call, and he's like Mahoney, Billy.
1: Oh, sorry, that was uh, that was just for me. So so John, tell me, tell us a, a bit more about that. I did not watch the twenty seventeen. So, uh, remake. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna go down the cast list first
0: because uh, I I think that it's important to know some of the differences in our main character breakdown. So, in kind of the ish role, the person who's really the ringleader, uh, the the character's name is Courtney Holmes, and that's played by Ellen Page, who I think is fantastic. She's yeah. great. I think that uh, she's great in this. This is a movie that has a 4% on Rotten Tomatoes. Personally, I think that it deserves a little bit more credit. The character of Ray, who... I mean, he's the only person who doesn't flatline, so he's kind of like the Steckle, but he's also Diego Luna, so he's, you know, a hunk. So, uh, not quite your Oliver Platt character. Um, They couldn't get, like, Josh Gad or... (laughs) No, they needed him to be uh, super hunky, and Diego Luna does the trick. No offense to Josh Gad, by the way. No offense to Josh Gad. The character of Marlo, who I guess would be a bit of a facsimile to Julia Roberts' character, and I'll get into that in a little bit. He's played by Nina Dobrev, who is like in Degrassi and- The Vampire uh, Diaries. Vampire Diaries, that's right. And she's she's quite good. Uh, This character named Jamie, who is the- um, I'd say he's the Billy Baldwin character. He plays, um, yeah, the character's name is Jamie, played by James Norton. I wasn't familiar with him, but he was totally fine. Sophia, who plays kind of the uh, David Labratio character, is Kiersey Clemens, who I think is fantastic. She stood out to me when I first saw her in the movie Hearts Beat Loud with Nick Offerman. I don't know, Dan, if you've seen that one, but it is a really. Sweet movie. Um, so, Kiersey Clemons is uh, Sophia Manning. And then, of course, you have Kiefer Sutherland. So, Flatliners, 2017, uh, written by Ben Ripley, who wrote Source Code, which is a fantastic time loop movie. Great movie. And, and uh, directed by Niels Arden Oplev, who also did uh, the the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo non-David Fincher Style,
1: so the original like Swedish, yeah. I mean, original,
0: team? original, but they, you know, they kind of were made around the same time. So no,
1: I I remember. Wasn't this, it yeah, like no, twenty ten or something? The one with Nomi Rapace was. I think that was. I think it was like two years before. Right, because like, I remember right around the I same re- time. Yeah, but I remember watching the Swedish one on like Netflix before uh-huh. the Fincher one oh, came yeah. out. Yeah. So okay so yeah yeah there were two, it was uh the Swedish uh version came out in 2009 and the American version came out in 2011.
0: So yeah but like right around the same time is what i'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. So uh i wanted to break down the characters because it's important to know just that like you know larger female representation uh especially considering that like the the main character is uh Ellen Page who's fantastic.
1: And diversity. And diversity. The the 1990 Flatliners, very white.
0: Very white. (laughs) Not as white as
1: Kiefer's apartment. (laughs) So,
0: several years after she was involved in a car accident that took the life of her little sister, medical school student Courtney decides that she's going to discover for herself what happens after you die. With the help of her reluctant med school pals Jamie and Sophia, she is able to officially flatline and experience the afterlife, a world of glowing orbs and the sensation of euphoria. But once Jamie and Sophia aren't able to resurrect her, they call on their classmate, Ray, to help them bring her out. Ray is followed by their overachieving classmate, Marlo. After successfully bringing Courtney back to life, Courtney has unlocked her full potential, now being able to recall locked-up memories from her past, how to play the piano, tidbits from textbooks from years past, her grandmother's bread recipe. Believing flatlining is a pathway to perfection, Jamie, the trust fund kid, goes next, envisioning a futuristic motorcycle ride with an old flame, but things become eerie once they arrive in an empty city. After his experience, the gang parties hard. Jamie and Courtney almost seem to have a cosmic connection with one another. Next, Marlo flatlines, but her afterlife vision isn't so pretty. She begins to drown in a pool, and then is surrounded by jellyfish. We see flashes of a patient in their hospital, who is in with terrible jellyfish stings on his face. Immediately after they get Marlo alive, it's Sophia's turn. She's transported to her high school, where she humiliates the smartest kid in her science class by exposing her racy pictures and sends them to her entire school. After they bring Sophia back, they party hard. Again. But all the while, the gang has been crumbling. Courtney has been seeing her little sister everywhere. Jamie has been haunted by his old flame. We learn that he knocked her up and that he bailed on taking her to the abortion clinic, never to show his face around her neighborhood ever again. We learn that Marlo was responsible for the jellyfish sting man to die due to her wrong decision, which she later covered up, never having taken the blame. Sophia is haunted by her former classmate. The only one never to flatline is Ray, the rock who holds them all together. Except for one night, Courtney is being chased through her building by the murderous vision of her little sister, ultimately leading to Courtney getting pushed off the fire escape of her building, plummeting to her death. So pulls a David Labracio and confronts the girl she humiliated in high school, now a success in her field. She apologizes and makes peace with her past. Next comes Jamie. He finds the girl he knocked up and discovers that she has a son, Jamie's son, and he vows to be there for the boy in any way he can. For Marlo, it's not so simple. The man whose blood is on her hands is dead. She has to flatline and make peace with him in the afterlife. But that's not the way it works. She has to forgive, bum bum bum, herself. She makes peace, but she's been under for too long. Or has she? Her friends pull her out, and they all live, and die, happily ever after.
1: Okay, so they kind of Hold have... for applause. Oh. Okay, go on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, no, that okay, so that's interesting. That's a cool way to remake it, not make it exactly the same, but make it close yeah. enough. I thought that it was done really well.
0: I really liked the idea that when you come back from it... You have you are changed. Like there is something in your mind that has changed, and uh, you know, in the same in a similar way to the way that like Joe. I'm trying to remember if I'm getting the names right. Hurley, Joe Hurley, the, the, the Lothario. Yeah, that's right. It's this whole. Joe Labratio thing it's throwing me. <laughs> I'm glad it's not just me. <laughs> so w- the way that Joe is using his camcorder to record all of the flat linings, I uh, they are using this like brain scan thing and they're going into like an MRI and they're recording the like the synapses and the brain firing, which is a, a you know a really cool way to to display it and it's very current. Um, a, a very current way, rather than a VHS camcorder that Currents, doesn't show you. anything. Get Currents. Hey, so uh, I, yeah, I like the idea that like something happens to you after you die. Like there's something that changes when you come back to life.
1: It would be interesting if there was, if, if there was a connection between that and, you know, the humans only use whatever, like 3% of their brain. Yes. Yeah. Just so, kind of a, a take on, on that. <laughs> Yeah.
0: And, and, you know, for the different characters, it comes up in different ways. So for Kirsty Clemens' character, she's, you know, she's going to med school and, you know, on a bunch of scholarships and her mother is living with her to kind of keep tabs on her. And uh, she, after coming out of it, she like stands up to her mother and tells her that she's going to be moving out and getting a place on her own. And like, she, you know, has this sense of confidence, even though she didn't have a wonderful vision when she went under, uh, it really gave her this like sense of purpose. And that could have been what pushed her to go see this girl who she was awful to when they were in high school and make amends. And, uh, I don't know. I think that there's a lot of ways in which, like, this version of Flatliners worked better for me because Mm. there's just, like, better explanations. Like, you know right off the bat that Ellen Page's character at the, you know, years prior got into a car accident that killed her little sister. And it gives you reason to understand why she would want to experience this, like, afterlife thing, to, like, be more at peace with the fact that her sister had died
1: just to know what her sister might have yeah, experienced yeah
0: for sure it just makes a lot more sense I uh, it doesn't take place in like a weird mausoleum like it actually takes place <laughs> in like the sub basement of a hospital that like is fully equipped but is just not in use and uh you know, there's a ticking clock to it where it's like they know when the night cleaning crew comes in so they know when they have to be done. So it's like there are things about it that just like in the world of storytelling and movie making move the movie a lot better. And yeah, I think that had there not been a Flatliners before this, it might have gotten a little bit more props.
1: Well, and it's interesting you say that because one of my big takeaways watching Flatliners again recently was that while well, the atmosphere is, and the performances are really strong, the script isn't. The concept is is strong, but the script itself is is pretty weak and has all these holes, you know, you don't know yeah. that you meet Nelson, you see Kiefer Sutherland. He's like, it's a good day to die. And you're like, all right, well, I, I saw the trailer. I know I'm going to see, f-. you know, I, I feel like going to see that movie at that time, it was like, you didn't question it. Cause you were going to see this concept, but I think now we do want more of that background. We do. We seek more backstory. I, I think that if you got rid of
0: like the, the Joe character, not only would we not have to worry about, Confusing two people's names, but it would have left a little bit more room for a little bit more story rather than just like cramming in one other person's one other person having to face their demons.
1: Right. I I think it would have been uh, I mean, knowing that Nelson was taken from his parents and in a group home and we talked at the beginning of the episode about trauma and Mm -hmm. and how deep Trauma can affect you. There's an in there's there's a story there, and I'm I'm not saying prequel here, but <laughs> I think there's just I think because I'm so, not every bit of backstory needs to be an entire prequel. There could be backstory that ex that shows that Nelson, because his life just turned to shit after Billy Mahoney died, has this sense of. All right. Well, if death is such a big deal, like it, it, like it's his way of redeeming himself by saying, like, I am going to discover, I am going to explore the next great, I am Columbus of the dead or something like that. You know, I am the. Well, I'll go. That would be Hurley with all the the sexual assault. So yeah. Um, well,
0: I think that, uh, and I can't remember for sure, but I feel like there was some sort of line thrown in there, explaining that Nelson, like wanted to be this like scientific Magellan who like discovers some
1: yes. Scientific Magellan. That's that's how they put it. And did they I'm pretty sure some type of I'm pretty sure Magellan (laughs) is the is the one. I'm more of I am a Magellan fan. Much more so. Of course I have I don't know any of the dirt on Magellan. So for all I know in 20 years. Magellan has not been cancelled yet. Magellan is not no I mean well yeah, Columbus, I I get it. I've I've you know yeah. read the excerpts from his diary. He's you know shitty. So, uh, but yeah, scientific Magellan of the mind or whatever they call him. And yeah, I, I I would have liked to have known more. I think that our culture now, where we have you know TV series like like Gotham and movies like Solo. Uh-huh. We we're an audience hungry for backstory. I think partially because a lot of the new content isn't thrilling, so it's like, well, let's take a look at what we had before and see what else is there. Yeah. So, which I guess is what we're doing. So yeah, totally. Uh, I I think backstory. I I think back. Uh, just to wrap up that thought, mm-hmm. when I first saw this movie, whether it was in the theater or or on VHS, I didn't ask that question. Maybe it's also because I was like thirteen, but. I didn't need to know it. It was like, okay, I'm watching this movie about these people who do this. And that's a cool concept. And that's great. You know, I uh, didn't get parts of it.
0: You don't have to really think too hard about it. If you just want to watch a a fun, weird, crazy, psychological thriller, you know, science fiction, psychological thriller.
1: I don't know. Yeah. But, but, but going back to the backstory idea, you know, it's it's a question that remains. It's something that kind of keeps. If you're gonna make so, like Nelson, if you're gonna if you're gonna have a main character making such an extreme act that they are asking their classmates to kill them and then revive them, yeah, with such extremity, there. I, I mean, maybe a little bit more, and and maybe that maybe the the uh, the screenwriter, and, and I know it was a first time screenwriter. I I forgot. I um I jot down his name. But I believe he was a first time screenwriter working on this. And I just wondered why they didn't have anyone like, you know, uh, punch up. Maybe they did, but, you know, I hadn't seen it in a while. And I remembered really liking Flatliners. And when I watched it, I was a little underwhelmed because of the script. I trace it back to the script.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it was a movie that had success and people still remember it because of the cast you know it's you know all of these people who are still doing amazing things some of the most famous people that there are billy baldwin as much as i like billy baldwin both on screen and uh on twitter oh I, yes he's yeah. a joy on twitter i love <laughs> he's him. a jo- man i agree with his takes say that much
1: as as do i yes yeah.
0: Uh, but yeah, you know, it's, it's a movie that's kind of built on these actors, you know, these kind of like hot young kids and Oliver Platt
1: and exploding like young, but it was like, you know, young, young Hollywood, which I know Kiefer Sutherland was, was established at that point. Kevin Bacon was established at that point, but William Baldwin had not yet It would be a year before backdraft. Yeah. And that's another, that's another, Hallmark of of Joel Schumacher movies, like the great Joel Schumacher movies, is putting together this young ensemble. Whether it's a St. almost fire five years before this, mm-hmm. with that group of of people like uh, Ali Sheedy, Mare Winningham, uh, uh, Emilio Estevez, Mr. Estevez, Rob Lowe, Rob Lowe, Judd Nelson, yeah, yeah. yeah, so Andrew McCarthy, so on and so forth. So, um, and the Lost Boys. Which man wouldn't wouldn't Jason Patrick and Kiefer Sutherland have made a great Batman Joker combo? Yes, in a Joel Schumacher Batman, like. And Jason Patrick's uh, one of the things that 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 Joel Schumacher said in one of the interviews about Jason Patrick was just that like he didn't want the he didn't really want all that he didn't want all the big you know fame and being like a heartthrob.
0: Okay, but man,
1: I'm imagining the Batman that could have been between him and uh, a Kiefer, a Kiefer Sutherland Joker. You know, though a Kiefer Sutherland Batman. Also, I think a Kiefer Kiefer Batman would be great. Yeah,
0: Kiefer. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, I it should be mentioned that you know it, it feels like a really original concept for 1990, but this was inspired by a Jack London short story called A Thousand Deaths uh, that was about experiment, a mad scientist experimenting with death. And there was a film ad- adaptation in 1939 called Torture Ship uh, with uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space's Lyle Talbot, amongst many other movies. He did a lot of other stuff, but for me, it's all, all about Plan 9. And that one is, as Wikipedia says, a mad scientist performs experiments on the criminal mind on, on captured criminals on board his private ship. So uh, I think that that's, I, I haven't seen it, nor have I read the short story, but from what I understand, it is, you know, the the 1930s version of
1: Flatliners. Of Flatliners. Oh, yeah. I'm going to check out that. Check out that story. It's not the usual Jack London fair. No. A Thousand Deaths. Cool name, too. Yeah. Very cool. So, I mean, we've got a remake already. What else? What are we going to do with this?
0: So, okay. The remake in 2017 didn't hit. It wasn't what people wanted. Even though I think it deserves a second look and... I understand the complaints that you know the reviewer the critics have. you know, some say that the effects are cheesy, even though I thought that it was totally fine. You know it's it's good for what it is. I think that maybe it, people need to take another look at it. But if I was to remake it, I would actually set it kind of in the like the turn of the century to have like a dawn of electricity version of it where like maybe something happens accidentally, like in the discovery of electricity, like maybe there's uh Nikola Tesla is involved somehow. <laughs>
1: I'm like, what? just Ben Franklin flatline when the lightning hits the key on the kite. And- <laughs> <laughs> well, that's going back a little bit further. Oh, that would be really
0: fast. That would be really funny. Like I could see Colonial actually, flatliners. If there's, yeah, if there's like a 1700s version where it's Ben Franklin and uh, the Founding Fathers playing with life and death. We have to bring him
1: back. Channel the lightning. And, you know, you do it
0: as a a comedy. I think that would be really funny. I was just thinking that it would be really cool to do kind of like a, uh, you know, a a
1: Frankenstein type of flatliners. Yeah, that's kind of that's what it's at. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean it's 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 definitely similar. Like there's there's a lot of the whole idea of playing God mm-hmm. and 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 playing with with life and death and people's lives, and it's very Frankenstein-y. So I I think a flatliners that goes back a gothic flatliners would be yeah. cool. And you could film it in the same locations, and you it certainly could. <laughs> you absolutely could. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, Dan, what were you thinking?
1: Well First of all, this was not what I was originally thinking, but then on Twitter earlier today, I was prompted. I was prompted to consider that I had to, by law of responding to this tweet, adapt the last film that I saw into a musical. Oh, I saw that. And it took a split second for me to picture Flatliners the musical and to Mm -hmm. know that... Damn that would work. That, yeah. A Flatliners a Flatliners musical would be wonderful. Now that was not what I had thought, so I have nothing more to say than Flatliners the musical to that. <laughs> I just I I think you could have a lot of great songs, but my more my more serious proposal um would be a series. Okay. Uh, Kind of a procedural um so you so to, the your structure of your series and you if you think think of it as type of think of it as like a scandal think of it as as like that type of show scandal and you've got your team and they're they're under the leadership of of you know whoever is has put this team together who would be Rachel Manis to me that's the character okay. that I would. And maybe you change her name but i actually would keep the name Rachel Manis and that she is researching because similarly to the uh to the remake that she has some experience in 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 my notes i have that she herself had a near death experience and and ever since then has been obsessed with finding out what does everybody have the same experience? What are the common bonds between the experiences? So she recruits a focus group of people. Her team are not necessarily all medical students, but they are all people who have already had near-death experiences and okay. are willing to do it again. Huh, okay, and are saying like, I saw the light, and then I got pulled back, and I want to like I. Kind of like that I was dead for a minute and a half, and I swear I got a glimpse of like you know my was it my great grandmother's face or and Elvis. then and then have that the, her great grandmother's face look like Elvis, um sure, or just Elvis, but like wanting to go back and and I imagine it as over the course of a season, it would be each one of those characters kind of unraveling this the mystery of their past, whatever trauma had been buried deep within. So, you know, it it's kind of like you'd have an episode that focuses more on on, let's say if we're using the original, Rachel uh trying to reconcile because the whole idea of flatliners is like you gotta make amends before you move on. Mm -hmm. You gotta, you gotta make good on things before you you move on, or I don't know, you don't move on. Who knows? But Having these people saying like, okay, well, I need to – because look, Kevin Bacon, all he needs to do is get in the car, drive an hour, and there's Winnie Hicks.
0: He doesn't get in the car. He gets into some
1: weird military – He gets into into (laughs) his survival – Assault vehicle. Yes, his urban hiking vehicle. And, you know, he drives an hour, and there's Winnie Hicks, and they – have. it's really, you know, pretty simple. But – what if Winnie Hicks was, you know, had relocated and was working in Tokyo? Uh, I mean, what if you had to have, you know, these things? What if Nelson had to go back to the boys? Home? What if what if Nelson had to go back to this boy's home where he lived? What if he what if he was traumatized in that boy's home? What if there was deeper trauma than just Billy Mahoney? And it's kind of like they go to the edge. They pull back whatever it is, and then they need to go deal with it. They need to take care of it. And Rachel, meanwhile, is also researching like, okay, what happens when the when you're technically dead, you're clinically dead, but yet there's you're experiencing something that shouldn't be. So to have mm-hmm. her unraveling that mystery while also reconciling with her past, I think would be – Interesting. And and I mean, you see, like, look, your first season could be at, at a med school, but let's say, what if she's like, okay, I've got the research that I need here. Now I need to get like, I need to research this across cultures. Like I need to go to yeah. Europe. So it, I could see it being a series where it keeps like a central character, almost like a Grey's Anatomy where Meredith is like, Meredith Grey is the one who stays around and all the other. I mean, there's a hand, there's like a core group of characters, but the rest kind of come and go over the course of, of the series where you would have Rachel kind of be the core and wherever she has to go to conduct her research, she's both reconciling things about her past and her trauma but also, I mean, and then you could take it what if what if it's that you have to reconcile things that like you're what if Rachel has to also like reconcile with the fact that her father participated in the My Lai massacre, which would mm-hmm. of course which which then resulted in him becoming a heroin addict, but what if Rachel, like okay, season one she resolves her issues with her with her father and is at peace with that, but what if season two she has to like she's got to go to Vietnam. Yeah. She has to track down people like family members. I'm thinking about, and maybe I'm inspired a little bit by the exorcist television series that I've been watching for a little while. Uh, Well, because I mean the first season they're in, well, they're in Chicago in the first season, but then in the second season, it moves actually um, not far from Seattle. Okay. They move up to like, it's an Island, you know, Washington state. So, it's very much like these exorcists go. And meanwhile, they're resolving their own inner turmoil, their own inner demons, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. As well as the outer demons.
0: So, uh, one thing that I investigated a little bit because I was curious based on David Labratio is any significance that their names might've had because, when you look at Labratio, it kind of looks like Labrat. And uh, I was looking into it. And then, you know, I went to Manus, and it's like, you know, that has to do with your hand. And it's like, okay, well, maybe there's something to that where it's like she's essential to this because, you know, she is the hand that is, you know, operating all this kind of stuff. And, but then it's like Steckel was just like, sounds like Jekyll. Sounds like Jekyll.
1: It does sound like Jekyll. Speaking of doctors who that is conducted a good, unorthodoxy. Good point. That's kind of yeah. the only that's the name that always hit me. Randall Steckle. He sounds like <laughs> Dr. Jekyll. So Hurley, I couldn't get
0: anything on, uh, nor could I get anything for Nelson. I
1: like the Jekyll connection. Well, he's Nelson Nelson Wright is his last name. Yes. Well he's that's set what is right. <laughs> well, that's something
0: that I was also thinking when with like Rachel Rachel Manis is like you know his his last name is spelled w-r-i-g-h-t like you know i'm thinking of something that's being wrought you know like that's Mm. you know sculpted with your hands and i was i was thinking like that and i was like maybe i'm thinking way
1: too far into this but let's because also you could take the fact that the first two letters w-r are also the first two letters of wrong
0: okay so it's a combination of right and wrong
1: the well, crossroads. he's turning wrong. He's turning <laughs> wrong into right, and he's got that a is, few letters. He's got to get, the, you know. I think that that's really
0: fascinating. <laughs>
1: yeah, thank you. I need to go get some ice because I'm sore from pulling all that out of my ass. But <laughs> uh, anything for Hurley, uh, <laughs> Hurley. Well, gir- girly, I don't know. Um, like uh, hurling something, uh, it so makes you want to hurl. I'm ashamed of myself because this is – I usually tell my students when we're analyzing literature, I'm like, always look at the names. Look at the names. Oh, totally. Yeah. So it's a surname of uh, Irish and English origin with the Irish version being more – Yeah, it it means corner bend. I mean, he's bent. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I mean,
1: does he spell it H-U-R-L-E-Y? I believe so. Yeah, yeah, I there maybe no, no, and I
0: also there. wonder why Kiefer's name would be Barry Wolfson in the 2017 version. Like, what is the significance of that name?
1: His father's a wolf. Uh, Donald Sutherland is a stone cold foxy. Wolf. I'd say
0: I he's a vampire in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but. I don't know. I don't Donald Sutherland? Yeah, he's
1: not Sutherland, yeah, he's isn't Donald Sutherland. No, Rutger Doesn't he turn Hauer. In... No, I don't think Donald Sutherland I thought he ramp. I thought
0: he turned. Anyway, I know Rutger Hauer.
1: The great me. Rutger Hauer with Paul Rubens as his, uh, his sidekick. I love that movie. I can't watch. Uh, Christy Swanson. Uh. Uh, I think it's
0: a great movie. And yes, it's unfortunate that Christy Swanson's personal... Uh, uh, life has, you know, turned the way it has, but Just,
1: I mean, yeah, it's, it's, but one she of those, was a great yeah. Buffy. She was a great she Buffy. Was. I, I love that movie. Luke Perry. Luke Port Perry. Yeah. Um, who else? David Arquette. Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck. Yes. Mm-hmm. In that.
0: So, he is in that. Yeah.
1: It's a good, good movie and a great series as well. Adapted into a wonderful series.
0: But back to Flatliners, yeah. uh, if you have any thoughts about Flatliners, what you might do with it these days, write to us, ruinchildhoodspod at gmail.com, or uh, you can comment to
1: one of our posts about it on Instagram, at Pod. Also, if you, anything that you want to share about the Joel Schumacher movies that we haven't been talking about, Incredible Ooh. Shrinking Woman was a big one. <laughs> You know, that we're not going to talk about really. that one.
0: I haven't seen another one that I watched the other night that we aren't going to focus on on this podcast is flawless, which we've talked about. You told me that it doesn't really do much for you.
1: But it's been a while. I haven't seen it in, in, in a while. Um, I, think, I think I think it's great. It.
0: I think it's great. I think it's one of my it's one of the De Niro roles that I like the best. Because I feel like, I, I always like it when he's doing something a little different. And in this case, you know, he
1: is not You mean a, not a gangster?
0: Right, not or? a gangster. This, he's a, you know, a conservative cop who has a stroke. And in order to get his speech back a little bit, he takes singing lessons from one of the neighbors in his building who is a... Well, he's a drag queen, or she's a drag queen, but also transgender.
1: Uh planning use transgender to refer to the character. Yeah.
0: yeah, who is pre-op, who is saving money for the the operation. And uh that's Philip Seymour Hoffman, who uh, I think is fantastic in it. The my one issue I have with that movie is that Philip Seymour Hoffman tends to speak very softly, and then you have De Niro, who's speaking uh, who has you know, difficult speaking difficulty speaking because of the stroke. So it's hard to understand them sometimes. But, uh, you know, in watching a lot of these other Joel Schumacher movies, you know, you you notice more of those like Joel Schumachery things, like, you know, really skewed camera angles and pops of color, like, you know, red lights in the background, contrast, a really like strong that.
1: contrast between light and dark. Mm-hmm,
0: absolutely. And, uh, I think also Chiaroscuro
1: a, it's called, yeah,
0: a big focus on character. Yeah. Huge, huge focus on character and also style clearly like the fashion in flawless is, is definitely at the forefront because you have a group of drag queens who are going to be performing in a drag queen competition. And and flawless is one that Joel Schumacher wrote, and mm. uh, I, I love that about it because it feels very personal. There's a um, this scene that goes on in that that I feel like is really fun to watch, where you have this gay and lesbian center, and you have the group of drag queens who are. Talking about the Pride Parade with the gay Republican group who also meets at the (laughs) Gay and Lesbian uh, Society. And uh, it's just those like really wonderful moments. Philip Seymour Hoffman, though, is just dynamite in it and uh, respect to uh, the true star of Along Came Polly. Let it ride!
1: Oh, facts. Yeah. No, I'm going to have to check this out. You know, I remember now I remember uh, because the cast of this movie includes at least two people who were in the original cast of Rent. Oh, yeah. On Broadway. Yeah. Um, Wilson. I was trying to remember if it was Wilson Cruz, but Wilson Jermaine Heredia and uh, Daphne Rubin Vega. They're both in flawless. So I see that that's streaming on HBO max. I'm going to give it, it's been a long time. So while you're in Schumacher mode. Yeah, no, there's that one. I've been trying to think about the other Joel Schumacher movies that I would recommend. Uh, I would say f- the one that I want to check out is Tigerland, which I never saw. I never saw it. I uh, did that with Colin Farrell, like really quick cheap, but, uh, it was supposed to be really good. Uh, and then Phone Booth, also, oh, Colin Farrell, another yeah. another player. Yeah, Another right. Joel Schumacher player. You know, player.
0: I, I've seen Phone Booth maybe one time, and I'd like to give it another watch.
1: I liked it. Hey, it's got Kiefer Sutherland.
0: People like it a lot. Does it now? The Prince of the Joel Schumacher Players. Truly, truly, truly. Uh, yeah, I got to watch that one again. I want to see if that's streaming somewhere. But our next episode is a... <laughs> I'm well, trying to find a way to link the word kefer in twofer because it's a, uh, a, well,
1: it's, th- a it, it's a, it's a, it yeah it's a twofer. It's not a kefer twofer. It's a one for kefer. It's a one for kefer twofer. A, but a Sutherland twofer in one. So maybe we should just yeah. say what they are. So we're, we're going to take a look at Joel Schumacher's adaptations of John Grisham's, the client and a time to kill yeah and we who knows some other entries into the Grisham verse may make their way uh could be bandied about, so but we will be focusing on uh 1994's the client and 1996 is a time to kill totally. um I've already
0: watched a Time to Kill, and uh, i I'm going to probably watch the client in the next couple of days, and we're going to see if we can get past guest. Laura, my wife, who is an attorney to uh, make an appearance as uh, kind of our legal consultant, kind of our... Uh, to I get have the, questions. I have a lot of questions too, to, you know, see as somebody who, uh, who definitely enjoys legal thriller fiction to see what how she feels about these movies, so...
1: I'm yeah, it's always interesting to get the reality versus the drama because courtroom dramas are wonderful and are great, and the courtroom setting is is just ripe for drama, but not always the the most uh, realistic. No, seldom realistic, I'd say. Uh, but no. we'll
0: have we'll see if we can get our our legal consultant to uh, in. our legal
1: expert. Yes, yeah, our legal expert. Excellent, wonderful. So,
0: uh, I guess on that note. Uh, On your way into the afterlife, Dan, I wish you a good journey.
1: (laughs) And, John, just as we will be back like the Flatliners, a good journey to you. Mama, take this bag off of me Cause I can't use it anymore It's getting dark and too dark to see